Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast. I'm here with Ari Mizell. Ari, what you been up to this week? Hey, Aaron. Uh, thanks for introing us for today. So it, it's a busy week for, for, I think, a lot of people this week because we've got Passover and Easter this week. So everyone's uh, schedules are, are kind of thrown off, I would say. Also, uh, it's supposed to be spring, basically. And today I woke up and there was snow on the ground, which which is kind of <laughs> shocking. So, yeah, um, yeah trying, trying to keep up with, with all of that craziness. But uh, I've, I've been doing a lot of writing this week, and uh, one of the things that I actually want to talk about was an article I just published on the blog, which is about automating payments. So uh, I, I know we were planning on talking about IFTTT today, and uh, I think this is probably a good place to start. So uh, you guys can go ahead and read the article. I, I mean, it would be great if you do, but... There is a new service, relatively new service from Square, which I've talked about this actually. We both talked about this on a couple of podcasts now, but I, this sort of epiphany hit me the other day. So a friend of mine, Nick, who who created Calvin, which is a new calendaring app, which I'm actually advising, which is really awesome, by the way. Everyone should check that out if they can. It, it's a... Uh, it's an app that it's in beta right now, but you can request an invite, and it, it makes it much, much easier to make plans with people. Uh, it's a little bit more on the social side, but it's it's really, I think, going to blow people away once it goes public. So that's called Calvin. Anyway, so I've been using the Square app, and I saw Nick last week, and he showed me how you can actually do the Square cash stuff without using the app at all, and I was, like, blowing my mind. So uh, <laughs> basically... You send an email to anybody you want, and you just CC cash at square.com. And that's if you want to send someone cash or request at square.com if you want to receive cash from somebody. And if they've never used it before, then they just have to give their debit card once, and, and then you're, you're sort of off to the races. But what I realized is that so I, I, we've been using this to pay our babysitter, which has been really, really cool because uh, it, I mean, it just makes things so much easier. And I realized that if you can send email if you can send cash by email, then you should be able to trigger it somehow, right? Right. So using IFTTT or Zapier for something more advanced, you can trigger and automate some pretty extensive payment information and even receiving of payments. So the, the outside, the, the, uh, the action is really easy. So the action is that, you know, either with your IFTTT or Zapier, the action is that you're going to be sending a Gmail message to the person and you're going to CC, you know, cash at square.com. And then the amount, you can either put in a static amount if it's always the same, or it could be derived from the trigger and then, you know, whatever you want in the email. So that's, that's the action. But the trigger could really be anything. The trigger could be a new post on an RSS feed or something that somebody puts in a Twitter hashtag if you want to get really fancy about it. Uh, or you could just create a form on your website now where somebody says, you know, something that somebody does outsource work for you, whether they're doing transcription work or graphic editing or whatever. They could say, you know, who they are, the work that they did, what their email address is, and, and how much the work was. And then that information can go right into, through Zapier, into an email and pay them. So, you know, you may not want to do this for your, you know, $10,000, $20,000 vendor payments, but for the things that are, you know, a couple hundred bucks or maybe $40, $50 at a time, it, it'll make it really convenient. And then you'll have a nice record of all that stuff. On, on the other side of it, you can use it to request money. So mm -hmm. if you log time with a, a client, for instance, and you log that however you want, you could send them an invoice, but you could also have it go this way. And it's really easy. You get the cash automatically in one to two days so i just got really excited about that and and looking forward i'd love for people to make comments on the post if they could about 
ways that they might be able to use different triggers to automate it. One of the crazy ones I came up with is that if you have somebody, for instance, that comes to your house and waters your plants, maybe they could flip a switch, a light switch on their way out and using the, the Belkin channel on IFTTT that could then signal that they've done their job and <laughs> they get their money. Just don't That'd tell, cool. just don't tell them that that's the trigger. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that's really cool. Like this. I, I can, I can see where that would really come in handy. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned some of the, the comments on Facebook, and I wanted to read one of the reviews that someone left on Facebook. His name is Mike Lamoth, and he says, Ari is simply amazing, and I, and I have everything he puts out, and I'm addicted to his podcast. Keep the content coming. So, Mike, thanks a lot for putting that up there. We'd love it if you'd go to iTunes as well and put something, a few sentences up there as well. It, it just uh, helps raise the podcast ranking on iTunes, but thanks for putting that out there. Yeah, Mike, thank you very much. And actually, that's a good segue to something really quick that I hadn't even gotten to tell you about Aaron yet, but we are, I'm working on a quick little promotion with Zazzle.com, which is a website that lets you customize uh, just about anything, t-shirts, coffee mugs, uh, mouse pads, uh, pens, all sorts of stuff. You can put your logo, whatever kind of stuff you want on it. And they are going to be providing me with 25 less doing workout t-shirts that we're going to be giving to people who leave reviews. So I think, uh, Mike, you're going to be the first one to get it. So if you're listening to this, Mike, uh, please send an email to me through our contact form on lessdoing.com and let me know that we mentioned you and you heard it and send us your address and we'll get you the first of these 25 t-shirts. So anybody who's listening, there'll be more information on this in the future. But uh, from the point of this podcast on, if you can leave reviews, we've got 25 of them. Either leave a review on iTunes or uh, where else, Aaron? Uh, Stitcher, um, Facebook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of that's good. So uh, thanks again, Mike. Um, And we got a question on uh, Facebook today too, right? Yeah. The question is, just curious, how are you generating the transcripts for your podcast? Um, are you outsourcing it to a professional or using some kind of software? Okay, so that, I mean that's a that's a great sort of basic question, and um, I, I've sort of talked about this before, but uh, for the most part, the transcripts are done through Fiverr. So Fiverr is you know one of my favorite websites in the world, and you can get all sorts of stuff done for five dollars. And there are tons of people who offer gigs such as I will transcribe fifteen minutes of audio for five dollars, or I will transcribe twenty minutes of your video for for five dollars, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the short answer, Mike, is that it goes to someone on Fiverr, and I don't always use the same person because. They tend to get overloaded, it seems like. So you'll have someone who's doing a really great job and they'll deliver it in two or three days, but then they they get overloaded with orders, so they'll pause their gig. But fortunately, there's a ton of them on there and they all have feedback and ratings, so you kind of know what you're getting into. The, The real determining factor for me is how long they take. Uh, so you'll, you'll have plenty of them who'll, who will do it a turnaround in two or three days. And then there's a lot of they'll take 10 or more days. So I never usually do those because we want to kind of keep this stuff moving on a good schedule. So I would check out Fiverr for that. Uh, if you're going to do something that's really long, you know, hours and hours, then you might want to look at something that's a little more extensive. But even so, you can still look on Fiverr because the majority of those people offer upsell opportunities. So they might do 15 minutes for $5, but that same person might do an hour for $15. So you, you really have to go on there and look. But uh, check out the transcriptionists on Fiverr.com. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to speak to that question, uh, I host a podcast as well, and I've tried using some of the software to transcribe, and it just really doesn't turn out very well. So I think spending a few bucks to get that transcribed is definitely worth it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and as a matter of fact, you can even go on our 
on our videos that, that we're doing right now, if you can go on them on YouTube and see the YouTube-generated closed captions, and they're okay, but they're still really not quite there. Uh, mm-hmm. Plus, the, one of the nice things with having it transcribed is a lot of them will offer timestamps and things. So it'll be, you know, it really helps you if it's like, oh, at five minutes this was said, and at seven, ten minutes this was said. And it, it's good if you're going to go back and edit or, or look at things. And further to that, if you're into sort of content creation in general, you know, whether you have a blog or a podcast or a speaker or whatever the stuff you do, transcribing stuff by another person is, is really helpful and I find that it's you can create this sort of feedback loop where you record something, they transcribe it, and then you can use the transcription almost as a script to do it again and mm. make it even better. You know, so I, I actually there'll be a pro post and, and if you're not a member of the Less Doing Pro community, you should definitely check it out because I post really sort of, I think, innovative videos for people who are trying to take this a little bit to the next level. But the, the next one that's coming out is about that feedback loop. And what I talk about is how you can do screencasts of processes that you might go through to share with people. But you can actually create a script for the screencast and then use the screencast to improve the script and sort of go around and around until it's, it's really perfect and you get it short and concise. Nice, nice. You know, you mentioned screencast there. What software are you using? Because a few weeks ago, it might have been last week, that you posted a Chrome um, extension that actually captures your screen. And I've been testing that out, and it's been working pretty good. Yeah, okay. So you're talking about Screencastify, right? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, that's what it's called. Screencastify, everyone. Yep. So, screen, so I'm really impressed. So uh, up until now, I've been using uh, Screencast. Screencast Maker, which is a, a native app for the the Mac, and you know anyone who's read a, a lot of my stuff knows that I really try to not have a lot of stuff installed on my computer. I really try to limit it as much as possible. So if I can get something done within the browser, I am all for it. But of course, screencasting is kind of computer resource intensive. You know, so if you're doing it in the browser, it, it, it's one of those things that tends to be kind of buggy. This has been working really great. I'm, I'm very impressed. So it runs within Chrome. They actually have an experimental mode where you can record stuff outside of Chrome. You can record the whole desktop. But you know most of the stuff you're doing is in the, in the Chrome tab anyway. So you can actually change the frame rate. You can record your microphone and your webcam. And uh, then you can immediately upload it to, to Google Drive and Dropbox. It's, it's very, very impressive and full feature. So that's what I've been using exclusively now. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Now, Ari, have you heard about this thing, the uh, Heartbleed Security? Um, has that affected you and like your last pass uh, passwords at all? So you know, I've had a lot of people ask me about last about the Heartbleed thing, and it's I mean, it seems like it's pretty terrible. But if so, for me personally, the three most important services that I use are Gmail, Evernote, and Dropbox. That's sort of like where everything that I do is, and 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 really. A lot of stuff stems from that. Those are the most important things. So I have two-step authentication on all of those things. And if you haven't enabled two-step authentication or you don't know what it is, you really should have it. And and if you don't know what it is, it's basically to use those services, you're going to get a code that I think is only good for about 10 minutes texted to your phone. It's like mm-hmm. a six-digit code, and you need that to access the service. Not necessarily every time. You can use – you can, you know uh, – permanently authorize a particular computer but if somebody outside tries to access it they're really not going to be able to it's, it's a very very good security protocol and and banks have been using this for a long time so those are the most most important ones to me and those are pretty much protected by two-step authentication 
For the stuff that's not, uh, Amazon is obviously a big thing for me, and it was not affected by Heartbleed. None of the okay. financial institutes, at least that I use online, were affected. Uh, but the one that was affected, the one service that I changed passwords on that uh, is a big one is GoDaddy. Okay. And people don't really think of that. People don't think about your domain registrar as, as a big source of security risk. But the truth is, is that if you're hosting your email with them, or even if they're just hosting your domain name and forwarding email that way, if somebody gets into your GoDaddy account, they could redirect the traffic or your email. So then they can start requesting resets of passwords and they'll be getting those emails instead of you. So that's that's kind of a big one. Uh, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm heading over there right now to change my password, actually. <laughs> I didn't think about that. So yeah, thanks so, for that. So that's an important one. If you're going to go like the less doing route, change that. <laughs> uh, and, and But again, with the two-step authentication, even if they get a password reset, they're not going to be able to get in without having your cell phone in their hand, basically. So unless you're dealing with a very, very sophisticated hacker, like like the one on House of Cards that was able to kind of outsmart the two-step authentication, you, you should be good with those. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you about this study that we've got in our yeah, Evernote file here. It's, it links um, napping with increase of all-cause mort- mortality. Okay, so let's, ta- let's pause for a second, okay? Now, this has been in the news a lot, and it's one of those ones that the, the media loves to take the headline and, and really tr- trump this up. But basically, what it's saying is, if you take naps during the day, you're going to die earlier. <laughs> okay, so yeah. that is the message that this is studying, sending. And so, right away, that's that's crazy enough that people should question it uh, for lots of lots of reasons. But basically, what the study was showing was that there is a link, they showed a link, they're not saying cause and effect, but they're showing a link between uh, taking these naps and having higher risk of death from cardiovascular diseases and uh, more specifically lung-related illnesses like uh, COPD, chronic chronic pulmonary disorder, I can't remember all the acronyms, but, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and lung failure, okay? Okay. So... They showed a link, but they didn't show the cause and effect. So more mm-hmm. likely, and the researchers even admitted this, that it's very likely that people who are having lung issues and are having trouble breathing and are having cardiovascular issues may take more naps because they're more tired. <laughs> right. Doesn't that make a little bit more sense than naps <laughs> leading to these kinds of deaths? It's, it, there, there's, no, there's no reason to even think that napping would lead to more death like it, it it just doesn't make sense to me so uh and again they kind of admitted this in the study and said that really the link needs more investigation but essentially they showed a link and the link is legitimate that there is seems to be a link between these naps and mm-hmm. um and those particular illnesses but again if you have somebody who's, whose heart is not pumping efficiently and they're not breathing effectively they're going to need more rest okay so um <laughs> asthma, bronchitis, like all of that stuff is going to make you tired. And generally speaking, a doctor diagnosing those problems would probably tell you to rest. So, Mm -hmm. uh, Well, that's a really good point. I I like how you picked up on that because a lot of times we get confused about these links and associations between things, but you really need to do maybe an advanced study where there's, um, you know, uh, they actually have one group that naps and then one group that doesn't, not just look at the link between the two. Right, exactly. And and that's, 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 the biggest problem is that I think that that's actually sort of a, and I don't want to, we don't have to go into like a really long discussion about this because we definitely could, but mm-hmm. that seems to be sort of a general issue with medicine nowadays. 
anyway, is that it's really, they're looking at symptoms rather than causes in a lot of cases and treating symptoms rather than causes, you know, so, which is something I've certainly seen. I know that you've probably seen that with your IBS, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's like if somebody's napping more, are you going to tell them like, oh, well, we can give you an upper or we can give you something energy wise to help you not sleep. And then and then you're not going to die. Like it's just <laughs> the whole thing is crazy. So, right. um, you know, take care of your health first and then you, you everything else will sort of fall into line. Basically. So do you do you use strategic naps at all? I used to be a huge fan of napping. Uh, nowadays, it's honestly like with the three kids and everything, it's, it's pretty much impossible. So that's why I uh, you know, try to get as good a sleep as I can at night. Uh, napping is a wonderful thing. And I think that people should nap if they can, honestly. And depending mm-hmm. on what you're doing in your life, the length of the nap, I think, is very very different. So if you're just, I mean, if you're active, but you know, you're working in an office, you're doing whatever, a 20 minute nap is probably good. And you probably shouldn't take more than that because a lot of people will end up going deeper into sleep if they take more than a 20 minute nap. Mm-hmm. But if you're someone who is an athlete or a triathlete or an endurance athlete or someone who's really, really pushing their bodies hard or somebody who has, is putting like inordinate amount of demands on their body, like they're performing or something uh, or they're, whatever it might be, then an hour and a half nap might make a lot more sense for them. And, and that timing is very important. Just as I've spoken about before with sleep hacking, that timing your sleep is important because you have these cycles. So a 20-minute nap is great because it's just sort of a light nap. You're not going to go too deep into sleep and and come out of it really quickly. But a 90-minute nap means that you're probably going to get an entire sleep cycle. So you will get that light to deep to REM sleep and then back up again. So if you're going to do that, you really got to commit to it because taking that 90-minute nap, you really don't want to take a two-hour nap and you really don't want to take a one-hour nap because Mm -hmm. you're going to hit, you know, you're going to hit those at bad points basically. So, uh Short answer there, no, I don't nap, but uh, I think that naps are very useful if you can work them in, and working them in in the right way is very important. And again, uh, usually between 2 and 4 in the afternoon is probably the best time for most people to nap, depending on when they wake up and depending on what their activity level is like, but that's that's sort of a general one. And I think people that will resonate with some people because that's often when people start to get that that sort of sugar crash lull at the end of the day. Right. And, and that's a great way to refresh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So should we talk a little bit about fecal transplants and uh, today's um, guest on the interview? Yeah. So this is one of those interviews where I wish I had like six hours to talk to this guy. So the interview is going to be with Glenn Taylor of the Tamount Clinic. And he is using fecal microbiota transplants to cure C. difficile or uh, uh, C. difficile infections, which is a, a really horrible infection when it actually gets to you. Um, but he's also using it for Crohn's, colitis, IBS, um, almost anything that can be linked to the gut. He's basically trying it with people who are willing because there's very little downside to it. Uh, and, and sorry, to back up, so fecal microbiota transplant is very simply taking the healthy microbiota from one person and putting it into an unhealthy person. And that is involving taking fecal matter and inserting it into where fecal matter goes. <laughs> so that is uh, what it is. And But with C. difficile, which is, a, which is one of those infections that a lot of people don't get affected by, but when it does affect you, it's very bad. Uh, and it tends to be resistant to antibiotics and really untreatable in a lot of ways. He's seen results in two to three hours with this kind of treatment. And mm-hmm. it makes sense. There's, there's research towards it that goes back decades uh and 
He's done it over 800 times at his clinic in the UK now. So really interesting guy. Very, very nice to talk to. Very knowledgeable. He's not a doctor. He's a microbiologist. Mm. And... Uh, it's, I think people are going to love this interview. So I, it's, I it's a great interview. I found it really interesting. And just the range of conditions that he's been able to treat with this is pretty amazing. He said that people would come in with something with their digestion and they would notice that their arthritis went away, which was just crazy. You yeah. Know? So that was a really cool one, uh, like the rheumatoid arthritis case. And, and, and so, you know, inflammatory conditions in general, have a lot of them have a autoimmune link. And even Hippocrates, who is you know the, the father of modern medicine, you know thousands of years ago in ancient Greece, said all illness begins in the gut. So if we can fix that, we can fix a lot of things. And that goes from those inflammatory conditions to uh, depression and anxiety. And I said to him on the interview, and I don't want to give too much of this away, but I said to him, you know, it's so easy and has so many possible implications that you're going to have people coming in for the common cold. To get mm-hmm. you know to get FMTs <laughs> as a transfer, and he thought that was really funny. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, I, I, everyone enjoy this, and you know, if you if you're enjoying the podcast, again, we'd love to get some reviews and, and feedback so that I can sh- not only hear what you guys think, but also shape the future of this podcast. So so thanks for listening, and um, everyone enjoy the interview. All right, great talking with you, Ari. Thanks, Aaron. Everybody, I am so excited to be speaking with Glenn Taylor, who is a microbiologist at the Taymount Clinic in the UK. Hi, Glenn. Yeah, hello, Harry. So, so thank you so much for speaking to me. I, um, so Glenn is a microbiologist who's uh, become an expert in fecal, <laughs> fecal transplants, which is really what I want to talk to him about. So, so Glenn, how did, how did you get to this point first? Let's start there. Well, first of all, it's actually fecal microbiota transplants. I don't use whole product. I just uh, I just extract the bacteria from there. Uh, how did I get into this? Well, I've been for ten years conscious of the fact that bacteria actually play a major part in digestion, and to try and improve the the environment inside the gut, I was working with probiotics, trying the different strains, different groupings, trying to combine them together, different media that I was growing them in. In essence, we were basically trying to to create sufficient bacteria that we hoped would colonize in a new human gut and, uh, and relieve many symptoms. It took years before I realized that probiotics, as good as they are when they're present, are very poor at colonizing. So uh, it was a phone call I received some three years ago, or at least my my wife was the first recipient of the call. A young man came on and said, uh, please don't put the phone down on me. Um, I've got an unusual question, and so far everybody I've asked this thinks that I'm, I'm a bit strange. I'm looking to get a whole human gut microbiota transplant. And, and my wife said, I'm sorry, I don't quite... What, 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 what exactly? I'm looking for fecal transplant. Bless her. She thought the worst and was about to put the phone down <laughs> until I, I practically vaulted the desk and I said, hold it, hold it. Hang on a second. I spoke to the young guy and that was my kind of road to Damascus. I suddenly realized that my work was broadly wasted and that what I really needed to be concentrating on was how to uh, find the right diversity of bacteria, how to harvest it, how to preserve it, and how to put it back in, how to implant it. And so for three years, I've I've just been researching, working, and putting it into practice, 
very quietly, I have to say, in, a, in the possibly the smallest research clinic in the world. <laughs> and um, then we found that one or two of my patients were sort of talking on the internet. And the next thing, I get an avalanche of inquiries. I had no clue that people were out looking. I, I had spent my time thinking, this is a bit fringe, a bit out there. Um, perhaps one day what we do might be looked at a little bit deeper and accepted as a possibility. What I didn't know was that th there were a huge amount of people on on a search trying to find anywhere where they could achieve a clinical grade of implant. And, um, yeah, that, the result is that we're about to move. We haven't been here very long before we have to throw up and put our, our bags in the back of the cart and move off to uh, a, a new facility that will give us four times as many treatment rooms and double the, the facilities of, uh, of being able to treat eight patients a day per room so just because it's absolutely necessary now. And, and, and this is so amazing to me. So, so I, I don't even... I almost don't know where to start because I'm like so excited to even talk to you about this. That, so the, the, first, the first question I have is how did you know what you could treat with it? Because, you know, as someone who suffered with Crohn's disease and, and overcame it, it, it seems like a lot of people, a lot of doctors at least, don't even consider the gut when looking at illnesses. So how did, how did you know what you could do with fecal microbiota transplants? Well, I suppose it's part of being a bit of a maverick um, and going out there and looking. Well, first of all, research told us that Clostridium difficile responds extremely quickly. In fact, the battle is over and done with in, in probably about an hour. We only continue here at the clinic to do another two treatments on top because, quite frankly, it's not fair to to let a Clostridium difficile patient not have a reasonable amount of microflora. After all, I'll, I'll continue on C. diff. C. diff yeah. is present in an alarmingly high number of people in very small amounts kept under control by your commensal bacteria. It's only when you interfere with the ratios that Clostridium can get out of its box and, and cause an infestation. So uh, this is why we hear cases uh, classically in hospital. Well, it's when people have undergone antibiotic treatment that they've changed the relationship of the, the different species in the gut that would normally keep Clostridium under control suddenly aren't there because the, the uh, antibiotic used kills the preventative bacteria. Boom, it happens. Yeah. And... Um, that that's like very well known we we then went on to say we'll do not just one but three treatments because these people clearly have got a problem in the first place with their microbiota so we'll do one to kill two to make sure three to start the recolonization process i know in i've heard horror stories from the c diff federation that, that a lot of physicians are simply relying upon a single implant and expecting it all to happen from there believe me fellas it doesn't so um, from that point, we started to hear some stories that immune conditions responded, that people were seeing a change in, in their symptoms when they had uh, implants. You have to remember that, that, that we realize that by changing gut flora, you can change fairly simple things like uh, constipation. So with pa patients who are experiencing severe constipation, what we do is we just wash out their existing bacteria, put in a whole new bunch, and hope 
presto, suddenly these people are able to, to have a, uh, a regularized bowel movement and feel comfortable and, and all the other symptoms that went with their constipation seem to abate. Now, when you're treating people for constipation and they've got an underlying condition, like you know, IBS, constipation that goes with IBS, mm-hmm. and they come back and say, hey, all my other IBS symptoms seem to have gone. Um, I have a colleague in Australia that I'll be with shortly, a, a professor of gastroenterology who's been a long-term proponent of this. Um, he found that when he was asked to treat patients with Parkinson's and autism who had classically had got constipation, when he replaced the gut flora and gave them a broad diversity and they were handed back to their carers, the, the, the physicians and carers responded by saying, well, what else did you do? Yeah, we're seeing neurological changes. All you did, what you just changed the bacteria, and now it's getting neurological changes. So, at this point, you start to look a little bit broader. Um, autoimmune diseases. You see, for example, when we treat patients and they report that they've got conditions like enteropathic arthritis, they go through a course of treatment and they say, oh, "What did you do to my arthritis? I did nothing." No, no, no. It's all gone. Excuse me. So now we have to start collecting data each time we treat a patient and say, do you have any symptom of arthritis? Can you watch and monitor during the treatment program and let us know what's happening? And people are saying, oh, you know, the aches in the joints and the, and the, the, the nodules on, on the fingers and the joints, I'm starting to see improvements. So this is all leading to autoimmune conditions right. being be clearly affected by changing the gut microflora. So what do you do? You just then look at what's the, what's the function of the colon in the human body. Now, we, we know, for example, that many patients, are, unfortunately, have to have a total colectomy. You get to a point where doctors can do no more than remove uh, a highly inflamed colon because it's close to perforation. Now, these people can survive, um, just as people who have colon cancer survive after the removal of the colon. Now, that means the colon surely isn't a primary organ of the digestive system. At that point, I started to question its role, and I started to do what-ifs. If you look at the structure of the colon, and you see that there are so many immune cells placed in the colon, after all... Now, there's a very high proportion of your immune system exists in the gut. Could it be that we have created an additional organ at the end of our digestive system? Because we do a pretty good job of, of making our own enzymes. Have we created an additional organ where we've given house room to bacteria, where the bacteria we now know interact with the immune system? So... Could we be describing perhaps more accurately the possibility that the colon is an organ of the immune system? If that's the case, what other autoimmune diseases now need to be investigated? We we should now be looking at Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, anything where there's a suggestion of an immune connection to see if by replacing all the gut flora in someone who has very bad dysbiosis, a very poor diversity of bacteria, if we actually change it and and give them a broad diversity, 
how does their immune system respond? And, and what we're seeing at the moment is extraordinary results. That's right. So, and I mean, this is just mind blowing to me. And so, first of all, my understanding is that the results uh, are are pretty quick when you do these. Ooh. They can be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Let's let's put Clostridium difficile aside to one second because. Sure. I mean, without sounding fatuous, it is actually as easy as falling off a log if you do it properly. <laughs> well, okay, so, uh, so, well, and please tell me a little bit about how the actual process takes place, because as you said, you're not doing whole material, you're doing the microbiota and stuff, so, because, you know, there's plenty of stuff on the internet about people with their do-it-yourself versions, which I think is kind of crazy, so... Um, how does the process of the actual transplantation take place? How do you, how do you uh, identify donors? Tell me about that. Okay, well, first of all, I'm not here to offend anyone who's undergone the procedure at home who thinks that that's the only one that's available. I'm aware that people can't work yeah. uh, because of their condition. They can't afford to go for a proper treatment. What I'm disturbed about is the stories I get. Unfortunately, at this moment in time, I'm getting a number of stories in the United States where... Um, the process is so poorly understood, but physicians seem to be uh, trying to use it as a as an opportunity and, and don't quite understand the, the the biology that's involved. Right, you've got to go right the way back to biology. How do we select? Yeah. We select donors um, based on lifestyle and their own understanding of what their their own wellness and their health is all about. We have to kiss a lot of frogs just to find a few princes. Okay. What we're looking for people who have basically got an innate understanding of what's good for them. They have little interaction with antibiotics in, the, in, in their recent history, that they eat particularly well, that they understand the concept that food has on the body, that, that by eating the right foodstuffs, you get the right responses, that they understand things like the, the paleo concept, that this, this hominid has survived one and a half million years on this planet by gathering, picking, plucking, digging, and throwing sticks at things. Mm. And those foods have allowed us to develop really rather successfully. And the new foods that have turned up in the last few millennia where, let's face it, we've only been farming for 280 linear conceptions, if you think about that, 280 generations. Um, what level of change to our DNA have we managed to achieve in a mere 280 opportunities to, to exploit mutation? So we, we have to look back at, the fact that we've survived so many thousands of generations and eaten the foods that we're used to and that we can eat well. And the, the concept of the paleo diet basically is you know, we understand it. We are genetically engineered to be able to consume it. It's going to take us many, many more thousands of years before we learn how to properly eat a pizza. Right. So, uh, you know... Sometimes uh, the kind of convenience foods are the only things to hand. If you apply the anti-20 rule, then you'll get better benefit. But um, so, the, the, yeah, our donors, back to that, because I do wonder. I do apologize for that. Um, we, yeah, we have to work with donors who eat very well, who have not suffered too much medical intervention, no. uh, who are tested 
um, and that's the, the, the critical part to this. We test people with both blood and stool tests to make sure they have no communicable diseases they can hand over to anybody in an immunocompromised state. So we're able to be fairly sure that we're not going to give uh, a recipient something they don't want. Our donors get paid to produce, they're professionals, and they're tested every three months. So in essence, looking for a new donor, somebody contacts us and says, I think I eat well. Okay, <laughs> start the test process. Uh, we take blood and stool, and they go off to the lab. Uh, we do D. An A profiling, so we're using qPCR processes to be able to tell exactly what bacteria are and are not present. It's the most accurate system to date. The old system of culturing is old school and very inaccurate. So we're testing them. At the same time, we bank what they produce. Uh, I'll go through that in a second. We bank what they produce. Then we get the results of the first test, which decide whether we keep anything they banked uh, or we dispose of it and we look somewhere else. If they're good on their first test, we continue to bank. After three months, we test again. If they're still good, everything we collected between day one and three months is clearly good to use. So we turn the box around in the ultra-deep freeze to the use end instead of fill. And now we can start using their microflora. We have, at this moment in time, the clinic has five donors which allows us to then choose from different donors on each day that we're putting an implant into a, a, a recipient, a patient. That means that on different days, different donors eat different things and have a different structure of their microbiome. Right. By utilizing five donors and then using different timed extractions, so we have one on one day of the month and another on another day of the month, but then we mix the days uh, the, the donors during the, the treatment program. So let's say 10-day treatment. You get two treatments from each donor at a different time of the month when they gave the implant. So that gives a much broader possibility of having a broader range of bacteria. Our diversity chances are increased so that we can kind of draw a straight line across the, the level of bacteria and say that you're going to be receiving almost kind of Olympic level bacteria. Right, right. It's, the, it's the, the creme de la creme of uh, microbiota. Um, and, and how are you getting it in? How is the implantation process happening? Uh, okay, well, the implant. Um, you hear a lot of horror stories how that happens. The nasogastric tube is one favored method. I have to say that we don't keep bacteria in our small intestine by some intrinsic systems that we engage to stop bacteria wandering around where they're not wanted. Mm -hmm. um, we use bile acids that we recycle again and again in our digestive process to keep our, bac our bacteria away from our small intestine. And it's very successful, which is why 99% of people walk around with a small intestine that does not suffer from small intestine bacterial overgrowth because we basically sterilize it. Now, this is very well-known procedure. Now, um, when... <laughs> When you start using a nasogastric tube, why would you place bacteria in harm's way by putting them into an environment that's likely to kill and discourage them? No, we go straight back in where it's supposed to go. Two ways of doing that, either by a colonoscope, you know that big, for those of the listeners who, who've undergone this, they're wincing at this moment. I, I know they, it well, uh, too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
there, there's no comfortable way of, of, of inserting a colonoscope. You know, it, it's, it's a big piece of equipment. Um, it probably needs sedation. It's not without a degree of risk for perforation. It really is an unpleasant experience that you wouldn't queue up and pay to do too often. So the object being that you use the very small biopsy channel that runs down the colonoscope the, uh, a good operator boasts that he can get from from daylight to the ileocecal valve in about 33 seconds flat. <laughs> that is in decent haste. But if you look at the, you know, <laughs> the way that they do that and the speed they go in, that's got to add risk somewhere. But once they're all the way in, they've scoped it with the camera and they said, we're in the right place. They then implant down through the biopsy channel, as they slowly withdraw the instrument. This allows them to leave a trail behind them. And that says, yeah, we, we're going to get pretty good dissemination. Now, I use a pediatric retral catheter, which allows me to put the implant into the descending colon. For those of you listening, put your hand on your left hip, in the soft part, just inside your left hip, where it just inside the bony bit, that's your descending colon. That's where I do the implant. And utilizing a couch that does some very clever trickery, as far as gravity is concerned, and a deal of um, manipulation, I then disperse the implant completely around the colon, getting 100% dispersal. Mm -hmm. So I achieve the same thing without the invasive process, with much lesser risk, and it's just as successful. And We've no been, sedation, right? And, and no sedation. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, you know, we've had a number of patients say, um, goodness gracious, is it in yet? <laughs> no, don't, don't, because that brings back memories of, of ex-girlfriends. Um, so that it's, it really is, it's, it's not a painful process at all. Nobody knows that, that, that it's there. Sometimes they go, oh, was, was that it going, is that the, the implant actually going in? Yeah, because they, they feel a small amount of, of, uh, of pressure as the, the, the colon has to accommodate the increase in the volume of, of the implant. But that very quickly then disperses. And um, yeah, the process is about three to four minutes, that's all. And then um, the patient then waits for 30 minutes because we want an appropriate amount of uh, inactivity whilst the patient then draws out the, the the saline solution they want to draw the water out making the the implant a little bit thicker so that it can then stick to the walls because this this stuff really does know how to stick mm -hmm. um there's a delightful english expression i won't regale you with but it involves this is an explicit yeah. podcast so you're welcome to <laughs> yeah well no it's um it, it, it sticks like whatever it is to a blanket um and that's what they do it's the the Peely and the, the flagella have got a method of, of, of adhering that's second only to, I guess, Araldite. It's, it's great stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we, we get full dissemination, no problem at all. And uh, 45 minutes, the, the patient is back on the road again, back to their hotel or, or back to their home. But we express that we want relatively little activity so that you have a chance for it just to settle down. Sure. Now, w w one of the things that, that really 
uh, makes me curious is because a lot of this, it, well, actually, you, you sort of said this too, because your donors, you're looking for people who have this certain lifestyle, they eat a certain way, or they have some awareness. So if it's just like if you give an alcoholic with cirrhosis a brand new liver, they really shouldn't go back to drinking because they have a new liver. So how do you deal with that aspect of that? You know, a lot of these illnesses could you know, brought on by a lifestyle that differs from the Olympian level donors mm. that you're getting it from. So is there any advice that's given to people on that front? Absolutely, because once they get here, then a whole team moves into play. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've got to address a number of issues. Stress, yeah. absolutely immense. Never underestimate the, the, <laughs> the damage that stress does. I'm glad that you said that system. first. So we work, we, we, you know, we've even got therapists who, who have to help people with their stress levels, yeah. um, including not letting people travel too far to get to us on a daily basis, that they get accommodation locally so they don't turn up completely strung out because that will undo everything we're going to do for the rest of the day. Right. So, yeah, stress we deal with, we, we have to make sure they're getting adequate sleep and the food. They, they really do need a lot of help with food because, let's be honest, if you carry on doing what you've always done, you're going to carry on getting what you always got. Yep. So Absolutely. something has to change, and it's the food. So it, it, it's amazing how, how open people are. Let's be honest. If you've, you've done this journey through life and it's exposed to you exactly why you're in the position you are, you generally take the advice that's given. And that is that you've got to eat correctly to make sure that these little fellas get their food as well. After all, are you, what's the expression, you are what you eat? Well, yeah. I don't know. I would say take that further. You are what you eat, eats. Yes, I, absolutely. Now, so watch your little guys. You've, you've managed to get your little guys inside. Now you've got to feed them. And you are the most extraordinary exotic pet shop. Now, let's, let's face it, if you went to that pet shop to buy a new pet and you walked up and down the aisles, found something that was really cute, went back up to the guy at the desk and said, I'd like to take this home, please. And if he said to you, did you get their food while you were down there? And you go, no, no, I thought I'd, I'd just feed it scraps off the table or we'd take it down to McDonald's every now and then. And you say, would you just take that thing back, put it back where you found it? You're not going to do it. You're, you're going you're to kill it. Right. So the point is, your bacteria live off certain food groups. If you want them to stay, could I suggest respectfully that you feed them properly? And I think that that's an excellent, excellent point. And so because you've made the process, it sounds pretty pain-free and pretty easy and pretty straightforward. I mean, it sounds like you could probably experiment with a whole bunch of complaints and illnesses that people might come in with. I mean, you're going to have people coming in with a common cold, getting... Uh, you know, an FMT and walking out feeling great, it sounds like. Uh, <laughs> okay, we'll draw the line at viral infections. Um, <laughs> well, no, but, but I mean, no, I, I'm, I'm joking I a little bit, but I'm being serious, yeah. No, I, I do agree with you. We don't know where this ends. Every single day is a new opportunity to find out just what else might happen. We get people sending emails saying, I've got... And they'll come up with something. I'm even having to go and have a look in a medical directory to find out what the heck it is. Yeah. And I say, what do you think? Are you willing to give it a go? And I think, well, what have you got to lose? Um, you, I guess you, you've got to lose the fee. That's something if it doesn't work. But every opportunity we get to find out whether the, if it's just the immune system or what else. 
Well, and, and oh, I mean, I'm sure there's, do, yeah. I, I know that there's going to have, I mean, you're going to have people, I'm sure, coming to you with depression, anxiety, all that kind of, I mean, and, mm. and autism even maybe could, has some effect here. What, what, are there any side effects? I mean, other than, you know, or, well, I mean, are there other side effects? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There will be. If somebody turns up in an extreme uh, acute state of inflammation, yeah. where they're, the mucosal level is the layer inside the, the colon is fairly exposed. They're ulcerated, pustulating, bleeding. Then I'm afraid that what bacteria do when they arrive in an environment is to test it to see if it tastes good. They're basically they'll flood enzymes onto a surface to see if they can break it down. That's what enzymes do. They're cleaving enzymes. They chop things up. And they will attack any surface they have access to. Normally, if you're protected by your mucosal layer, then you'll do minimal damage. But if it's exposed, yeah, I'm afraid that you're not going to do yourself a huge amount of good. Don't think that you can take a flare into a clinic for treatment with ulcerative with, with FMT sure. because the flare has to be brought under control first. Otherwise, you're likely to see it exacerbated. Okay, and that's that's one of the major side effects that you receive. In biological terms, if I was to purely talk as a biologist, I'd say, so, you take all the necessary bacteria out of a fit and healthy person. You've tested the person, they've got no infectious diseases. You take these bacteria and you put them into a gut of a person who's lacking a lot of bacteria. For pity's sakes, what side effects are you expecting to happen? Why would you even imagine that they would? Now, that's taking a simplistic view. What I'm saying is that there are precious few. What we're seeing is inflammation is a big problem, and you shouldn't undertake FMT if you have a high level of inflammation. Otherwise, you're just going to exacerbate the situation. But otherwise, it's not a problem. Okay. Well, uh, well, Glenn, we're almost out of time here, and I want to respect your time. So I, I want to make sure that people know that, that uh, if they want to send you an email saying... I've got this. Can I try it? How do they find out about the Tame Mount Clinic and, and what you're doing? Okay. Well, very simple to find us. It's Tame Mount, not Mont, for a start. We get people turning up from funny angles. But uh, yeah, Tame Mount Clinic is at www.tamemount.com. Um, to, to go through the website first, we'll answer a huge amount of questions. It will also show you how to get hold of us. If you can't find the, quest, the answer to the question you've got there, then admin, A-D-M-I-N, admin at tameup.com will get you there. But I do beg you to go to the website first and to read everything. And, um, yeah, we'll, if you've got something really unusual, yeah, bring it to us. Like uh, recently, TMAU, trimethylamine urea. That's, um, you know, the, the fish smell syndrome. We're investigating to see whether... Some bacteria contain FMO3, the enzyme required, and see if that will help. So there's, there's lots of things that we are yet to investigate. Wow. Well, Never. yeah, well, Glenn, thank you so much uh, for your time. And I mean, this is really eye-opening for me. And I, I know that for the people listening to this podcast particularly, this is going to be amazingly interesting. So, uh, Glenn, thank you again. And uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for inviting me along to talk. I hope I haven't bamboozled too many people with too much science. And that you've, I mean, I take it this is going out in the States and you'll get the accent, I hope, after a period of time. <laughs> yeah, we, we take a slightly different view on it. You've strangled ours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think it, it made for a very good delivery, so thank you. 